Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous. Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous Film Twitter.com, and this is the Mr. Movies Podcast. Thank you guys for uh, joining me today. It's a uh, it's a really calm, uh, storming night here in uh, 91 degree Florida. Um, I was sitting on the couch with my wife, and I couldn't think of a better movie to play during uh, like weather like this than Eraserhead. Eraserhead is the cornerstone of surrealist cinema, I think. I think it's fair to say that, that this is the foundation that surrealist cinema is built upon. Whether people admit that or not, Eraserhead opened a door that had been opened in the early 20s, but uh, didn't really seem to be revisited too much. After Eraserhead, uh, non-conventional storytelling tropes started appearing in bigger budget movies uh and i don't know but we can't undersell just how important its impact has been on the craft as a whole this to me is david lynch's seminal work um nothing tops this twin peaks is great mulholland drives a masterpiece nothing tops Eraserhead. um he peaked here But the cool thing about David Lynch is that when he peaked, he managed to plateau at that peak. Um, He's only been quality. Uh, Sure, he's had a few whiffs, but I mean, we excuse that. We chalk it up to, uh, I don't know. Anytime I see David Lynch whiff, I immediately think, God, the production studio got their hands in there and messed it up. Circling back, yes... I do know that, like, movies like Unchien Andalou did surrealism on film first, but that movie's just kind of incomprehensible. It's like nonsensical dream logic. I think that movie was mostly a vehicle to show that one scene where the guy cuts a lady's eyeball with a razor. And, uh, yeah. This here, though. This. Lynch explored a new branch of surrealism that's hard to quantify, really. Uh, It's really difficult to pin what his motivations for things are, which leaves his cinema largely open to interpretation, which is the mentality of surrealism, isn't it? Uh, That kind of, like, interpreting the id. Um, I wouldn't say, like, interpreting dreams, but definitely uh, that, like, Freudian logic of interpreting... Uh, you know, like the id, the ego, and the superego. And um, just a couple things about this film before we get into it. This film took like five years to finish because it was so hard to fund. Um, 
The main character, Jack Nance, Eraserhead, that guy, he actually kept his haircut like that for the entirety of filming. He is Eraserhead. There's no way around it. Jack Nance is Eraserhead. And um, the last thing that I want to get into before we start talking about the plot and themes is this quote that I found from uh, Michael Richardson's book, which is uh, Surrealism in Cinema, where he simply defines surrealism in cinema as being about departures rather than arrivals. And um, I think this is key for understanding the anxiety that this film is appealing to. Because surrealism in film is not like surrealism in painting. Um, I'm not too well versed on the art movement as a whole. I do know that the Black Dahlia murder, the guy who's suspected to be the Black Dahlia murder, which is uh, George Hodel, allegedly, um, was heavily influenced by surrealists because the surrealist movement, that like, French uh, surrealist movement was largely about controlling women. Um, at least that's what a uh, professor of surrealism, or at least professor of like art movements, was uh, talking about on this podcast I was listening to about the Black Dahlia murder. And um, I don't know enough to contest that. I mean, it sounds right. Those uh, most of those French surrealists were freaks looking at you, Man Ray. But surrealism in film is different. It's really hard to quantify what surrealism in film is. And that's awesome. It doesn't put boundaries on what the... And I I don't know what you would call it. You know, because like surrealism isn't a genre. It's more like a way of thinking. But what's great about it is you, we, since we haven't really explicitly defined it, we haven't allowed boundaries to form on what is and isn't surrealist, which is great. It's this whole frontier that uh, authors like David Lynch have been exploring and has been incredibly exciting to follow along with him. As, you know, as boundaries get pushed, we find out what works, what doesn't work, and Eventually, you end up with something like an eraser head. So, I think now's as good of a time as any to get into it. Fade in on this ever-present white noise. Um, this white noise is almost constant throughout this movie. It's a really unsettling ambiance that guides us into the uh, bad time. What we see is a man's face. Um, this man is Henry Eraserhead. I'm just going to be calling him Eraserhead for the entirety of this um, podcast. And it's Eraserhead's face, slowly being penetrated by a meteorite, or some kind of lump. We're unsure, really. Um, his face is opaque, and this object passes through him easily. And the look on his face is pure, unbridled, I don't 
know what to call it. It's apathy, it's depression, it's anxiety and worry, all at the same time. Uh, and then we start to move closer into this lump, this asteroid-looking thing. And the white noise picks up. It gets louder and louder and louder until we're getting a lunar orbit look at the valleys of it. Every nook and cranny, every odd bump, every crack highlighted by a piercing white light on the surface. Then we fade out on a picture of a hole. From here, a long snake-like creature pours out of Eraserhead's mouth and unfurls its long, just horrible body. It's this terrible-looking creature. It's a wretched monster, and it just writhes in pain. Um, a wart-covered man pulls a lever, and this awful snake-like creature falls into this damp, wet hole where it's completely submerged and loses all the air around it. The bubbles that fly off of its body fade away until we're left in the cold, dark, black void. Then suddenly, we're carried out, and we see an exit. And this exit is a hole, and on the other side of this hole is a blinding white light. After this, we walk along with Eraserhead through what looks like an industrial hellscape. The buildings are hollowed out, burnt, abandoned. Everything looks lonely and cold. And Eraserhead's clutching something as he makes his way through this awful industrial labyrinth. I do want to point out that he's wearing this like really proper suit and has the haircut of a hype beast in the early 90s. And he very much is a man playing a part in society that's incredibly rugged and hostile. He's a caricature of someone who would have been chewed up and spit out by the system. He's wearing a suit and it couldn't be more obvious how out of place he is. Also, I want to point out that this movie is either intentionally or unintentionally hilarious. It like teeters on being a comedy. Because Eraserhead gets into an elevator and is just left there. He presses a button and he waits for the doors to close. And he waits. And he waits. And he waits. And just when you think it won't happen, it doesn't happen because we wait. And we wait. And then the elevator doors close. <laughs> It's funny. It's just genuinely good timing. Um, he really is just some bystander in a world that doesn't care about him. Even the machinery sees him as a nuisance. This whole movie is filled with little scenes like this that really make you feel like this guy should have been booted out of the city just for existing in it. And it's wild how little anyone cares about him. Eraserhead makes it home. After an oddly erotic conversation with his neighbor, he makes it in, just in time to put a record on, kick his shoes off, and throw his socks onto the radiator. The radiator hisses and smokes. It's agonizing 
how much it vibrates and pounds in his head. He somehow breaks himself away from the gaze of this radiator before finding a picture of his wife, with the head separated from the shoulders. Something... something's wrong. Eraserhead makes his way to a woman's house, and... she doesn't want him there. But she does. She says that he's late, but he says that she doesn't come around anymore. There's an odd tension in the air, but it's not romantic. There's an uneasy distance between Eraserhead and his girlfriend. Nevertheless, she invites him in, where he meets her mother. A cold, frigid, bitter woman who couldn't be more unhappy to meet him. Throughout their entire conversation, which feels like something out of the first level of a Rosetta Stone English lesson, a litter of dogs are loudly being breastfed just a couple feet away from them. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I I work at LaPelle's factory. I'm a printer. Henry's very clever at printing. The literal agony of this scene is thankfully cut by one of the only two characters that feel anything other than morbid, detached depression. And it's her dad. I thought I heard a stranger. Who's a plumber. And a damn proud one. And he can prove it. Just look at his knees. I've seen this neighborhood change from pastures to the hell hole it is now. I put every damn pipe in this neighborhood. Yeah, people think pipes grow in their home, but they sure as hell don't. Look at my knees. Look at my knees. And he's made dinner. What he's made for dinner is a perfectly normal chicken dinner, but they're man-made and small. Smaller than your fist. Her dad goes through a story about how he had an operation on his arm, which has left it completely numb, so he can't carve the meat. He needs a racer head to do it. And the second that he pushes a carving fork into this small chicken, the legs begin to kick, and it begins to bleed profusely. The camera's pushed up in the hole, too. It's, um... It's uncomfortable. It's a loud gurgling all up in that whole bloody mess and um this scene naturally sends uh, her mom her his girlfriend's mom into uh what seems like ecstasy at first and then sheer terror she can't handle what she's just seen and erase her head and her father sit there in silence You'll be all right in a minute. Excuse me. To break the silence, her dad asks him if he knows anything. To which he says, "Uh, I don't know anything. And then just stares at him smiling for one whole agonizing minute. (laughs) This shit's so uncomfortable. Um, 
All right, so why did I tell you all this? It's not fun to just walk through the plot of something. There's a reason for all this. The reason I've told you all this is that that whole beginning scene uh, where there was like that odd snake beast crashing into the, the pool of water, the bleeding chicken, all of it is a surrealist look into the sex Eraserhead and his girlfriend had that produced a legitimately horrible creature. The beast at the beginning that was uh, shaped and writhed around like sperm, uh, it crashed into a pool of water, which was the fertilization of the egg. And the craning shot into the blinding white light was the exit through the birth canal. The dinner, the bleeding chicken, the writhing legs, the uncomfortable family, to me, was a metaphor for childbirth. Childbirth is beautiful, obviously, you know, creating life. That's insane that we have the power to do that. But it's also painful and traumatic. And it's a messy thing that our bodies do. And it can overwhelm, like, someone who clearly wants grandchildren, but isn't ready to let go of her daughter yet. And all this is brought out by her mother, who corners a racer head in the hallway and demands to know if they had sex. Did you and Mary have sexual intercourse? Did you? Why are you asking me this question? I have a very good reason. And now I want you to tell me. The whole time, he's avoiding the question. He's terrified to answer it. And it does matter, actually, because she answers for him. Which is, of course, they did. Uh, Because there's a baby at the hospital... And it was born prematurely. And it's his. There is a problem, though. We aren't really sure if this is human or not. Answer me. I'm too nervous. There's a baby. It's at the hospital. Mom! And you're the father. But that's impossible. It's only been... It's premature, but there's a baby. And my God, do they have a right to be skeptical. Uh, this horrible creature, good God. It's, uh, like a fleshy calf with no skin. It's, uh, it's like a horse without a properly shaped skull. It's like a, like a shaved wet bear. This awful thing is also wrapped up in bandages like a mummy. It's uh, completely and perfectly swaddled. Whatever it is, it's whining, and Eraserhead's girlfriend is trying her hardest to feed it, and the whole time, it's spitting up food. And she couldn't be more depressed to be raising this creature. I want to be, like, perfectly clear. She hates this thing. Uh, Because, like, the baby constantly cries. It won't ever take any food. And none of this matters to Eraserhead because the radiator's calling him again. But this time, he looks into it. And inside this radiator is a small stage with a spotlight. And just before the act is about to perform, he crashes right back down to Earth with his child's constant crying. 
there any mail? No. And um, I think now's as good of a time as any to talk about this baby. There's a uh, no explanation what this is. Um, chances are it's some sort of puppet. You know, like some sort of incredibly expensive model that David Lynch paid tons of money to get. But he's never said that. And uh, this thing looks too organic to be like a doll. Like a latex puppet that somebody would have. I mean, it really does look like gun-cooked chicken. It's, like, got, like, muscles and stuff. I think there's a really real chance that David Lynch used like, uh, some sort of corpse and animated it with, uh, some form of electricity to get this thing to writhe around and do stuff with its face. I cannot emphasize how awful it is to look at this thing. This thing does not look like it is from our planet. And I'm not saying that in, like, the, uh, alien with a big head and big eyes kind of way. I can't really think of an animal that I'd be like, ah, that's what it is. It's, uh, this. It's something wretched that shouldn't exist. Later that night, we get our first look into Eraserhead and his girlfriend's relationship. And it's cold. There's no romance. They don't look at each other, and they don't even touch each other. He's moving through the motions of life, but she keeps getting more and more upset with each passing moment. The baby will not stop crying, and she's even resorted to getting up and screaming in its face to shut up. And, uh, yeah, weir- weirdly, this doesn't work. Uh, I mean, obviously she can't take it anymore, so she leaves. But to do this, she has to dislodge a suitcase from underneath the bed. And she tries to pull the handle of the suitcase to get it out from under the bed, maybe 20 times, all while open mouth sobbing. It's, it's funny. I don't, I don't care. Uh, David Lynch, I don't know if you were trying to be funny or sincere here, but it's masterful, whatever it is. This right here, key to my heart. It's so good. And she's gone. Eraserhead decides finally to take his baby's temperature. You know, he has to step in, being the only parent here anymore. And, um... You know, he sticks a thermometer in its mouth, and then he's looking at the numbers, and everything looks right, you know? You know, you just think, like, yeah, those are right around where you need to be. And, uh, when he glances back at his baby, this creature is covered in sores and bumps, like a severe case of smallpox. And he lets out such an honest, oh, 
You are sick. Which, uh, this movie plays to the anxieties of being a father to a brand new child so well. Uh, the second your child is sick, all of a sudden, it could be a deadly virus. Who knows? Definitely not you. So you should panic, because this baby's going to die, and it's all your fault. Also, he's trying to leave the room to do... something. I think just not be in there, really. And the second that he touches the doorknob, this horrible creature just bursts into a screaming fit. So he's trapped in that room, unable to leave. He's held hostage by this child that he's supposed to love, which is exactly what having a newborn's like, uh, waking up every two hours to feed them. You know, like, uh, they'll even scream and cry if you move in the slightest while they're eating. It's great. Highly recommend it. When he finally gets a moment of peace, he focuses in on the radiator. And this time, he sees the stage. And a woman with the biggest clay cheeks money can buy is doing this nervous sidestepping dance while a pipe organ plays off in the distance. The whole time that she's dancing, these snake-like creatures are falling from the ceiling. They almost perfectly resemble what his child looked like from the opening scene of the movie. And as she dances, she steps on one. Then another. Completely crushing them. Uh, you know, literally, like, making them explode from the pressure of standing on them. stage light fades out, and the woman in the radiator has given him a vision, which I'll go into later at the end of this podcast. Trust, I, I've, I've got a theory, and it's not original. <laughs> Bet you can't wait. His girlfriend and him are struggling to get along in the bedroom. Uh, it's sleeping problems, mostly. She clenches her jaw at night, you know, doing the Thing with her teeth, uh, waking him up, and she just like rides around trying to get comfortable. Um, she's like wrapped up in her blanket so tight it looks like she's in a straitjacket and she's flailing around. And um, yeah, he uh, weirdly can't sleep next to this. And um, while she's doing this, Eraserhead finds these awful snake like creatures wriggling around in their sheets. He finds three of them, actually, and spikes each of them against the wall. Which is great because it's in slow motion while it hits the wall and sticks and falls. This scene's complicated. I have a theory about what this is, 
I think that this is supposed to be a surrealist look into a couple that's trying to have an air quotes normal baby and failing constantly. These could be either abortions or miscarriages, but whatever it is, they resemble that smallest form of that infant, of his firstborn son, almost perfectly. The symbolism's just too close for me not to make that connection. Later that night, Eraser heads up and walking around his apartment, and um, he sees his seductive neighbor. And she says that she's locked herself out of her apartment, and it's so late. I imagine if you were in a deeply unhappy relationship where you're constantly fighting and there's no intimacy, and the other person's constantly leaving to go be back with her parents, um, you know, and you also have a child that won't stop crying and is making your life completely miserable, the temptation to be extramarital is probably really high. And I mean, this guy's life is falling apart constantly. And she is, like, the embodiment of temptation. So, she asks him if she can spend the night there. Uh, maybe one inch away from his lips, too. And he agrees. So they're doing stuff, but that wretched baby starts to cry. And for some reason, this almost kills the mood. But as they become more passionate their bed becomes a pool of murky, unclear water. The more that they uh, do stuff, uh, the deeper they submerge into the water, which further reinforces the interpretation of the conception of the child from the beginning of the movie. Um, Everything related to sex in this movie has almost like an extraterrestrial element to it, which uh, I don't mean solely because the baby looks like an alien, but just in general. There's a, like, like, these things look like asteroids, and everything is this, uh, it's almost like a meteor impacting a crater, is birthing life, much like a sperm piercing the egg births a baby. Um, I, I appreciate it. The symbolism is really cool. The inherent eroticism of space. And I'm gonna fuck it. We fade to black, then open up on the woman in the radiator, singing, In heaven, everything is fine. But this time, Eraserhead meets her in person. She offers both her hands to him, and when he touches them, a blinding white angelic light fills the screen. He panics and lets go, then grabs them again, and then the light reappears. This feeds into my theory at the end, I promise. Um, This dream gradually becomes a nightmare as Eraserhead's head flies off and rolls on the ground. 
sprouting out his child's crying head in its place, all as a rock begins to bleed, completely drenching his severed head in dark blood. The baby head wails and wails until it harmonizes, and his head completely submerges itself in blood, which sends it through a portal and onto the street where a young child finds it and runs away with it. The child brings his head to this odd house, storefront, it's something, where he hands it off to a man with a drill, who drills a hole directly into his skull, then uses the drill core to collect a sample to plug it into his large machine. This machine builds pencils, and as the machine churns, it's adding eraser heads to them. The boy drops a severed head on the table, gets paid for delivering it, and leaves. Yep, so there's our title drop. They use Eraserhead's head to make Eraserheads. It's a damn fine pencil, too. Going out like a king. We're back with Eraserhead now. Um, He's looking around, and everything seems to be the same, but... Things feel irregular to him. Like he doesn't belong in this world anymore. He knocks on his neighbor's door, the seductive neighbor, and she's not there. He comes back inside, and his baby is making this guttural laughing sound at him. It's almost mocking him for having hope that things could ever improve in his life. Off in the distance, he hears a faint pipe organ. It's the woman in the radiator performing again. And this is cut by his child mocking him by laughing at him again. Then, Eraserhead hears the elevator doors open, you know, next to his room. And he rushes out to find his neighbor, who's qu- who he's like quickly fallen in love with, taking a new man into her apartment, then closing the door. This breaks Eraserhead. Everything that he had. Everything that made him happy is now gone. And he glares at his child. This is the root of all of his problems. Every failed portion of his relationship, um, his new relationship, the fact that he can't get a night's sleep, the fact that he's having these nightmares, are all caused by this child. This child is the root of all evil in his eyes, and he has to do something about it. At least he thinks that. So what he does is he rummages through his drawers and finds a pair of scissors. And he decides that it's time to cut open his child's bandages. As he cuts them from the bottom up, the creature begins to panic. It's hyperventilating, actually. Which is the right thing to do because these bandages were the only thing holding this child together, it turns out. The creature doesn't have skin. He doesn't have bones. So every single one of his inner organs are splayed out, vulnerable. An eraser head cuts at the inside of his body, and blood begins to erupt from this creature. 
It lets out this otherworldly scream as foam billows from his wounds. And the lights flicker as it howls, and electrical outlets are hurling sparks from them. And as the foam completely covers this beast, I mean, it's pouring out of him. It's like a volcanic eruption. The beast begins to transform. His neck is now six feet long. His head is enormous. And he's teleporting all around the room with each light flash that goes on. The lights cut out, and then we get that iconic shot. Eraserhead staring horrified at a cracking stone with a dark mist fluttering behind him. As we travel into the stone, we see this horrible man from earlier, the wart-covered man who pulled the lever that dropped the child into the pool of water with sparks flying off at his hands, which fades to white, and the woman from the radiator is embracing Eraserhead, and he finally looks at peace. This is the end of the movie. But I want to ask a question. After his head flew off, did any of this matter? I don't think so. My reasoning is this. When the woman in the radiator held out her hands, when she presented her hands to erase her head, uh, he took them and saw an angelic white light. He recoils the first time, but the second time he holds on, and then he's incredibly scared. This, to me, is the symbolism of Eraserhead ending his life. Um, I'm not sure how you would do this with a radiator, either like cooking your brain, touching a faulty outlet and stopping your heart, breathing in poisonous gas, I, I don't know. But everything from this point on in the movie, to me, is inconsequential. It doesn't matter because Eraserhead had already passed on. Does it matter that he had a fantasy that he murdered his child? No, because none of it happened. And if it did, it was a trial. It was a descent into literal hell. It was the storm before the calm, if that exists. Which, I mean, her presenting her hands, uh, it's Christ imagery, honestly. Um... Because every picture that we have of uh, Jesus that we like illustrate is usually him with his palms turned upwards, um, almost like beckoning you to come into his embrace. And with his life being at the lowest low that it's ever been at, and him being at his most miserable point, it's not completely irrational for him to consider this as an out. You know, if nothing's ever going to get better and he lives in this hellscape, why ever have hope? Which brings me to uh, an argument that I heard. Not, not an argument, just like somebody's take on it, where they believed that the lady in the radiator actually resembled hope. Which I think is um, a part of 
uh, her being like the calling of death. Because if she represented hope, you know, uh, she would be his salvation. Um, she would be the means for which his life would improve, which is not the case at any point in this movie. At no point in this movie does anything ever improve for him. I mean, he has sex once, and right afterwards is immediately heartbroken. I don't think that it's hope in the traditional sense. I don't think that the lady in the radiator represented happier times ahead, or like a longing for happier times. I think she represented the hope of relief, of finally leaving this world and no longer being trapped in the hellscape that is your failed relationships, your failed parenthood, and your failed career. It's an industrial wasteland, and he doesn't look like he fits the part at all. He's an outsider in every aspect of his life, and him choosing to leave this life may not be the worst decision in his mind. In that last shot of the movie, as the woman in the radiator is hugging him, and he finally looks relieved. This is the first time that we've seen a look on his face that isn't just pure worry or angst or disgust or depression. Because after all, in heaven, everything is fine. This is one of the most incredible movies I've ever seen, and I cannot emphasize how important it is for all of you to watch it, to experience it at some point in your life, and just really take in how different David Lynch's approach to filmmaking was compared to his contemporaries. This movie came out in 1977, which is widely regarded as one of the greatest years for film, and if we take a look at the films that came out at the time, you know, like, um, if I remember right, Jaws came out in 77. All right, here we go. Jaws did not come out in 77, but what did was Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Wars, Saturday Night Fever, Smokey and the Bandit, Suspiria, Sorcerer, The Spy Who Loved Me, Annie Hall, Three Women... Rolling Thunder, you see where I'm going with this. A lot of these movies are well-respected for being cornerstones of a genre that already exists and was already very well-respected. Um, this movie, to me, didn't have anything that it was building off of. This is truly an original thought. We get a look into a mind that is telling stories in a way that we haven't really seen before. I mean, um, you can make an argument that the French Surrealists were purposely pushing boundaries because they were railing against a uh, growing conservative movement in France, and um, a lot of their reasoning was just being countercultural, which uh, can produce some good art, but it's not authentic in a way, right? David Lynch really thinks this way. His interpretations of how to explain things like the anxiety of fatherhood when the child was unexpected, 
the panic that we have whenever people that we love, people that we were supposed to spend the rest of our lives with go away, how do you convey that without explicitly saying that? How do you convey depression? How do you convey a longing for death without explicitly stating it? And David Lynch found out that one way that you can do it is embrace surrealist tropes. Uh, believe in, uh, I don't know what you would call it, like the metaphorical portrayal of things through characters, through nonsensical reasoning, through appealing to like the id, the ego, and the superego, if you want to get Freudian. Lynch saw this, and I, I'm just blown away that he made something like this in the same year that Star Wars came out. And Lynch forged a path. Um, I think that anybody who's working in any sort of film capacity that even touches surrealism, even has a surrealist sequence in it, they're doing it in the shadows of Big Daddy Lynch. And it's probably going to be that forever. The fact that we have a film like this that is a wholly original thought there was a passion project that took like five years to finish that they struggled to get funding for because it was so out of the boundaries that we were all used to for films. We have to celebrate this. This is one of those films that we hang on to forever. This is one that we celebrate, and how lucky are we that we can watch it whenever we want now. Oh, looks like they're uh, playing me out. That uh, big-cheeked woman over there. I don't know what her deal is, but she wants me to hug her. All right, fine, I'll come over there. 